the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Glad you're with us right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. We get on the air, uh, well, well, it's because of Alan Dempsey. He's our engineer. Andrew Herdliska is our producer. And Mary Letterleitner is our guest, executive director of Missional Intelligence. Her book is out, Women in God's Mission. Mary, welcome. How are you? Good, Pat. Uh, Did I pronounce your name right? You actually did. It's a hard name, and you got it the first time. (laughs) I'm not fussy if people mispronounce it, but yeah, it's rare for people to get it the first time. Letter Lightner. There we go. Tell me about your book. Well, um, I did research with really talented women uh, born and raised in about 30 countries. And each woman in the book was recommended for the research because she was really respected as a leader uh, by people who knew her. And so a lot of leadership books um, are written by guys and women try to find their place in them. And, and I've appreciated a lot of those books. Um, but I wanted to be able to write a book that also brought uh, women's voices into the conversation about leadership. You uh, open your book with this topic, God's Amazing Daughters. Uh, tell us about how the book opens. Well, um, in, in this book, what I wanted to do is, is highlight um, stories of really gifted women. And so, um, you know, in... In the book, uh, a lot of times women's stories uh, don't get highlighted and kind of get overshadowed by other stories. And so um, with this, I wanted to just provide kind of an initial sample in the first chapter of the different ways that women are doing amazing things around the world. And um, so, yeah, so it opens um, with... uh, Each chapter opens with a quote from a woman from one part of the world and a story from a woman from another part of the world. Then you move on navigating power when serving. I want to hear about that. Well, um, in this situation, it can be um, uh, kind of challenging because a lot of times uh, just it's sometimes harder um, for women to enter into different leadership positions. A lot of times young boys are groomed to be leaders from the time they're, they're little. And um, a lot of times uh, women are, are more socialized to kind of support people. And so in this chapter, um, what I do is I share a number of ways that women entered into leadership positions. <laughs> a lot of times uh, they did it in ways they never expected. Um, sometimes uh, their husbands were killed unexpectedly, and the whole board would ask them to now uh, take over as um, uh, leading. Um, others uh, would step out of the workforce for a while. They would raise kids, and then they would come back in. And so um, how they were getting into leadership was often really different. A lot of times guys have like a... a there's almost like a, a ladder metaphor, and men reach for the next rung on that ladder. For women, um, the path to leadership is often uh, a windy uh, path, <laughs> a winding one, mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of twists and turns. Um, so I, I kind of highlight that in Chapter 2. And then you move to this topic, being authentic when leading. Uh, fill us in. Well, um, what's really um, hard is a lot of leadership um, examples and models are built off of sports metaphors or they're built off of military metaphors. 
And because of that, a lot of the conversation about leadership um, is, is, is very male. And so it's really hard sometimes for women when they do enter um, leadership roles to be able to find their own ways to lead authentically. And so I share a number of stories um, about women in different parts of the world as they kind of uh, found their own kind of authentic voice and their own way of leading. Um, I talk about one model, a minority identity development model, and how a lot of times women start out just by leading like men. And then they come to a phase where they realize, wow, I shouldn't have to put aside all of who I am to lead. And then they kind of wrestle with it. And then they, they kind of work it through until finally what emerges over time is their own uh, leadership style that's authentic to who they are. So I kind of unpack that in Chapter 3. Now I want you to get to this topic a distinctive foundation. Uh, what's entailed here? Well, um, what was so incredibly fascinating in the research is uh, a new leadership model emerged. And I'm very excited about this. And, and there's seven traits to the leadership model. But the, the two overarching pieces that, uh, that sort of describe it are, the, are faithfulness, and connectedness. And so um, this was really intriguing because in a lot of the leadership literature, it talks about how women are kind of in a double bind. If they lead like a man, they'll often be viewed as competent, but they won't often be liked. If they lead in very feminine ways, they're, they're often liked. Uh, by guys and and women, but not really viewed as being very competent. And so this is throughout all kinds of leadership literature. It's it's just been the norm uh, for years and years. And so what was so fascinating is this leadership style emerged from these women. And what was so intriguing is I found that it enabled them to be viewed as very competent, but also they were liked. And so it was fascinating. So a lot of times in other countries, what you'll find is the culture determines how a person leads. So a person from West Africa who I've met leads differently from a Latin leader who leads differently from a Korean leader who leads differently, say, from a Canadian leader, et cetera. What was really fascinating in this research was that the women from many different parts of the world were leading very similarly. And I think if my sample had been different, um, it wouldn't have been this way. But because each of these women was recommended because she was deeply respected, I think that that's what created this dynamic. So they navigated this double bind. They were both uh, respected and liked. Now, we need to get on to this topic. My guest is Mary Leader Leitner, and her book is called Women in God's Mission. Mary, tell us about Connected in Different Ways. Well, um, what was really fascinating is that uh, the women were extremely collaborative in how they led. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, uh, one, of the, one of the first pieces of the Faithful Connected model was the idea that it wasn't about them. Um, And so because it wasn't about them, it was almost like the exact opposite of the strongman leader model that's very prevalent right now around the world. With these women, they felt like it was about developing many people. It was about bringing many people into, into the effort, into the work. And so um, like one, one German woman talked about how women have a panoramic view. We like to take everyone in. And so, um, so in this way, they were always looking to bring more people into, into the, whatever the mission task or whatever the goal, uh, whatever the objective was, and to see them develop along the way. And they were also very connected to their um, communities and the culture where they were working. 
So they were always aware of ripple effects and wanting to take the whole picture uh, kind of into consideration as they developed a strategy and uh, as they developed a way of working. My guest is Mary Leader Leitner from uh, Mundelein, Illinois. Her book, Women in God's Mission. We got another segment with Mary right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. More with Mary right after these messages. Mary Leader Leitner is with us uh, from her home in Illinois, Executive Director of Missional Intelligence. But the book is called Women in God's Mission. Mary, we've arrived at this topic, persevering with wisdom. Tell us about that. Well, I think what happens with uh, a number of women leaders, um, the ones that that I included in my book, which were um, really exceptional women leaders, uh, deeply respected by people who knew them, often at different points in their journeys, they have to figure out how to make sense of hurtful situations, discouraging circumstances, um, many times of injustice, times of gender discrimination, but they need to find a way to make meaning of that in a way that honors um, you know, their belief that, that God is good and God is kind and, and God is loving. So why is this happening? And so through this chapter, I share a number of stories about how these women make meaning in times of difficulty in ways that enable them to move forward and not get stuck. Um, So this is really a hugely important aspect of persevering as a leader. It's at the heart of resilience, um, but it's it's really key to continuing on and being able to keep developing and becoming the, the leader you're really able to be. I want to move to the next topic, prioritizing impact and excellence. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's, um, it, it can be um, really uh, challenging because a lot of times the um, sort of the the stereotype uh, in the in the world is that um, men care more about impact and women care more about relationships. But with these women, um, what was really key was that they were always um, caring about impact, and and in that um, in that place, part of uh, what uh, was needed to ensure impact was their ability to keep growing and keep developing. They would develop new skills. They would um, really um, focus on uh, learning new things and uh, learning how to be um, aware of how they were impacting other people. So it was really encouraging to see and learn from them how they were growing in, in impact awareness personally and the steps they were taking to be the best, um, just the best leaders and the best catalyst for growth around them. Now I want you to move into the next area and uh, tell us about caring about challenges. Oh, this is really important, and um, mm-hmm. and I struggled with this because uh, a lot of women were really concerned um, that only women would ever read this book. And they felt like um, sometimes uh, a lot of guys aren't slowing down to really uh, listen or learn about their experiences. And so in this, what, um, what really struck me were, were metaphors they shared about what they were experiencing um, inconsistencies they were experiencing in the workplace, and um, and it really struck me uh, almost like invisibility. Uh, it struck me how important it is not just to give a book like this to a woman in your life, maybe who you really care about, uh, 
a mom or a sister or a wife, um, or giving it to women in the workplace that you work with. But how important it is also that that the guy who does this also reads the book. <laughs> and there's all kinds of great questions all throughout it. Very non-threatening to be able to to just occasionally ask and learn um, what women uh, that you care about are really experiencing. I think a lot of times guys think if women aren't saying anything that everything's okay, but often what's happening is that they um, they felt like they weren't heard in the past, and so they don't want to be difficult. They don't want to get a reputation of being a complainer, and so they just sort of absorb a lot of things. And so uh, taking time to really genuinely care is really the first step of seeing real change happen. And I think the book provides a good uh, tool to be able to do that. What do you mean about strategies that accommodate others? Well, um, I found that as women um, bumped up against uh, different things, primarily when it came to their gender, sort of gender barriers, that, um, that there were two broad approaches uh, to this. And the first I talk about in Chapter 9 is accommodating others. It's, um, it's, it's maybe allowing um, an offended person to work with a guy instead of a woman. Um, sometimes uh, it was uh, being very intentional to totally always assume the best of intentions, that the person didn't mean uh, to do something hurtful, but then just assuming the very best of intentions just talking to the person. Uh, sometimes it was just accepting what they couldn't change. And this is really hard, especially for young women. Um, so, so these types of things played out. Um, a, a woman from West uh, Africa said that in her culture, women play a backdoor, um, that basically when uh, a chief says that the knight will bring advice, it means that he'll seek advice from his first wife. And that she accepted that society didn't give women a leading role, but she felt like they still had a very important role, but it was often behind the scenes. So it's, it's this, for some women, it's accepting um, cultural realities and just making the best of them. So that's chapter nine with accommodation. Uh, strategies. And how about when accommodation hinders faithfulness? What does that mean? Yeah, well, sometimes what happens is women realize that if I accommodate, I'm not going to be able to accomplish <laughs> what I'm called to accomplish. Um, it, it, the stakes are simply too high. Uh, this person maybe doesn't think that women should do this, but if I listen to this, I'll live my whole life and not fulfill what I was put on the earth to do. So then, um, if that's the case, they would they would implement different strategies. Um, sometimes they would just let the offended person uh, realize they need to work it out, or if they're not comfortable having a woman boss, then then they need to find another job. Um, others um, just left their uh, organizations, and they went uh, other places to work. What was very consistent with the women that, that I interviewed for this book and did research with was that they didn't want to fight. They just didn't want to fight about gender. They, they had no control as to whether they were born a little girl or a little boy. Um, they just want to be faithful. They want their lives to matter. They want to use their skills in the best possible way to do the best good in the world. And so, um, so that, that was this sample. Um, you know, that, that's maybe not every, obviously, every woman in the world at all. But that, that was the heart of the women um, who, who I worked with when I wrote this book. Mary Leader Leitner is our guest, Women in God's Mission Now what women need to do their best work, and you say, if married, they need husbands who act like Jesus. <laughs> yes, 
you know, it was really amazing when I did the research. And these women were from so many different countries and contexts. But when they talked about their husbands, it was like they were all married to the same guy. I'm like, this is crazy. How can this be? I even know some of these guys, and outwardly, they don't seem similar at all. And what I realized is that they, uh, their husbands, if I really thought about it, actually did mirror how Jesus treats uh, his, his church. So in scripture, there's a passage in Ephesians that talks about how marriage should reflect the mystery of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. So I found these questions. Is Jesus focused primarily on his own comfort? He's not. Neither were these husbands. Is Jesus threatened by his bride, the church? He's not threatened. These husbands weren't threatened by their wives. Does Jesus encourage his bride, the church? He totally does. These husbands totally did as well. Does Jesus want his bride, the church, to grow to her full potential? He does. These husbands wanted their wives to grow to their full potential. And then does Jesus delight in his bride's accomplishments? Does Jesus delight in the church's accomplishments? He does. These husbands deeply delighted in their, their wives' accomplishments. So it was really intriguing. There's all kinds of, throughout the whole book, there are so many fascinating quotes and, and things to unpack what we're talking about today. But this was really intriguing. And that leads us to this second need, a healthier metaphor in the workplace. What's that mean? Well, I think a lot of times uh, in every work situation, there is a metaphor playing out about men and women. It is hardly ever discussed, but women feel it all the time. Um, And, you know, sometimes in a lot of places, the metaphor is women... Uh, are temptresses who will just cause men to stumble. And no one ever talks about that, but because of that, there's all kinds of rules about what women are allowed to do or aren't allowed to do, that sort of thing. Um, I share another metaphor, um, the idea that that our eternal calling is a sacred sibling. There's actually all kinds of Bible verses about that, um, about how our real um, identity is as siblings. And so there's a number of other different types of metaphors that can shape the work environment. But women need a metaphor that actually helps them to do their best work and doesn't marginalize them uh, in the process. Now we move to this topic. Interesting one. They want men courageously opening opportunities. Yeah, this is really huge because in so much of the book, I share all the proactive things these women leaders were doing. They were doing everything in their power to do their best work. But there were certain things that were absolutely never going to change unless unless men cared and they were willing to, to change the situation. And so uh, a lot of times it takes a lot of courage for a guy to do that, especially if a certain field has been totally dominated by male leadership. So, um, so anyway, so they share a lot of their comments that I think can really inspire and help guys to be courageous, uh, to really take those steps um, so that women can also fully participate in, in whatever um, the organization is where they're working. How about cultivating encouragement and growth? You know, there are so many different ways to do this and um, uh, different types of ways to mentor people, to mentor them in communities uh, with more than one person at a time, um, the importance of dialogue. Um, just uh, There's so many different things. We, we can't hardly touch on all of them now. But, but the idea is, is the metaphor is will um, will women be a bonsai or will they be able to grow uh, and be oak trees? And a lot of that determines uh, what processes we have in our workplaces that really encourage women to grow to their full potential or implicitly there are um, barriers that are keeping that growth from happening. 
So that chapter kind of unpacks a number of different areas. Well, our guest has been Mary T. Lederleitner, the book, Women in God's Mission. Mary, wonderful to chat with you. Congrats on the book, and I uh, wish you all the best. Oh, thank you so much. It was a joy to be with you today. Folks, uh, we've got more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. And remember, faith comes by hearing. We'll be right back after these messages. Mary T. Lederleitner, our guest in that first segment, talking about her book, Women in God's Mission. Uh, Matthew Barrett is in Kansas City. Uh, He is a professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. His book is out. It's called None Greater. Baker Books put it out, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. Matthew, welcome. How are you? Doing great. Thank you for having me on. Uh, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. What does that mean? Well, that subtitle is central to the argument that I make, which is, as Christians and in our Christian circles, oftentimes we talk about God in a way that tends to domesticate Him. Uh, We tend to view God as merely a a bigger, better version of ourselves, and when we do that, uh, God merely becomes just the same type of being that we are, but just a, a greater in size. What I argue is that actually God can't be domesticated like that. He's not just a mere, uh, merely a bigger, better version of ourselves. Uh, the Bible calls that idolatry. Rather, uh, he's a different type of being altogether. He's the creator. We're the creature. He's infinite, and we are finite. He's incomprehensible, and, and from there stem a whole range of divine attributes. Matthew, your uh, book, your chapter titles all end with a question mark. So let's get started. Can we know the essence of God? Yes, well, this gets at the incomprehensibility of God. If he's the creator who is infinite and we are the creature who is finite, uh, then we can never uh, exhaust God. We can never uh, get to a point where we've mastered God in some way. Uh, He is incomprehensible in that sense. Now, while we can never um, know God exhaustively, we can, however, know Him truly as He has made Himself known to us through His works and, most importantly, through His Son, Jesus Christ. Next question. Can we think God's thoughts after Him? Well, this is a question that uh, deserves a lot of care and precision. Whenever we talk about God, we have to remember that this is the infinite God we are speaking of. And so our language, uh, naturally, is those who are made in, in His image. Uh, we're, we're, not, we're not God ourselves. We're, we image God instead. Uh, well, if that's the case, then our language about God, our, our God talk, as I like to say, it's always uh, analogical in nature. In, in other words, it doesn't, it doesn't pretend to capture God in all His glory and, and uh, magnificence, nor does it pretend that, uh, well, we can't know anything about God. Rather, there is both similarity and dissimilarity. So we can know God, but we always have to remember, whenever we're talking about God, we're talking about Him um, in, in a way that's uh, by analogy. Now, we move to another question. Is God the perfect being? Well, the short answer is yes, and absolutely yes. Uh, Of course, every Christian affirms God's the perfect being, but what I mean by that is something a little bit more Uh, in-depth. When I say God's the perfect being, I mean He's someone than whom none greater can be conceived. And if that's the case, well, He must be infinite, uh, the, the infinite God. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means that any type of limitation must be precluded from the start. Uh, and from there come all the rest of the attributes. Any, any limitation uh, that would somehow cripple God, uh, like change or uh, being made up of parts or being uh, a God who's dependent on a needy God or a God who, who's 
vulnerable to mood swings or bound by time and space and so on. All these types of limitations are precluded of God, which means that uh, whenever we talk about the attributes of God, we have to then define him as the one who is perfect, infinite, without these creaturely limitations. Now, Matthew, tell us about, does God depend on you? You know, so often as Christians, I sometimes hear Christians talk this way, um, well-intentioned perhaps, but uh, they'll say, well, what was God doing before he created the world? And they'll say, well, he, he was He was lonely. Uh, he was, you know, twiddling his thumbs, and thank goodness he created us. Uh, we, we somehow brought him fulfillment. Well, that may sound like that makes us important, but actually that's a God that uh, we start to feel sorry for, a God who's, who's a needy God and, and desperate almost. Uh, when, when we go to Scripture, what we see is, well, if God is infinite and the perfect being, he's not uh, dependent on the creature as if he's a, a needy God. Rather, he is independent, self-existent, self-sufficient, a God of aseity. And it's only because he is uh, a God of a society that he, he then can help us very needy, dependent creatures who in, entirely depend on him. What does the word society mean? When we use the word society, or in, it comes from the Latin, I mean, uh, it refers to the fact that God is life in and of himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he doesn't look to someone else to uh, give him... Uh, to, 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 for his own existence, or to somehow, uh, you know, fill a hole that's lacking in him. He is also, it means he is um, life in himself, independent, self-existent, self-sufficient. Uh, Matthew, the next question is, is God made up of parts? You know, sometimes when we talk about the attributes of God, naturally, because we're finite creatures, we have to focus on one attribute at a time, and that's fine. But we always need to remember that uh, even though we're talking about one attribute of to- at a time, these are not parts in God. It's not as if God's you know thirty percent love and forty percent holiness, that sort of thing. Uh, if if this were the case, uh, well, we we would have a problem. It would mean that God is uh, like us, you know, uh, a being who's composed of different things, and then there's the potential that he could be divided by these parts, or even these parts could fall apart on us. Uh, Rather, God is simple. Uh, He's a God uh, who's one. Uh, This is something that's said throughout the Scriptures. Uh, To put this plainly, uh, we see this in Scripture whenever it says that God doesn't merely possess love. He is love. He, he, He doesn't just act in a righteous way. He is holy. Does God change? That's immutability, right? Yes, immutability. This may be one of the most important attributes and important chapters in the book, uh, because when we, a minute ago, we talked about God being the perfect being, and and therefore any type of limitation has to be uh, precluded. Well, uh, maybe first on the list, the the limitation that, that would just spell disaster for God would be any type of change in God. It's that would raise the question, is he changing for the better? Is he changing for the worse? Can we can we rely on him? Can we trust in him? Well, Scripture uh, again and again tells us, no, God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It says he's everlasting. He is always eternally the same. And for that reason, we can depend on him and trust in his promises. Does God have emotions? You know, in the 21st century, we use uh, very emotional language, uh, especially when we're talking about one another. Um, And uh, we have to be careful here, because if we simply apply that to God, well, he can start to look a lot like the the pagan deities that surrounded Israel. These were, uh, or or even some of the the Greek and Roman uh, pagan deities, Uh, these were gods who were bigger and better than mankind, but just as much, uh, they looked a lot like man, uh, very much uh, emotional and and uh, subject to mood swings. You know, one minute uh, they love you, the next minute uh, you can't trust them because they turn against you, and 
uh, very, very unpredictable. Well, when we come to Scripture, we see that, well, God is a God who does not change. He's immutable. And what one aspect of that is uh, this is a God uh, who, who's not uh, vulnerable to, to these types of mood swings. He, he's not subject to emotional change. Uh, rather, he's a God who, who is who he is eternally. Is that what the word impassibility means? It is. Uh, it's an old word. We we don't use it much today. But uh, if we look at, say, the old confessions of the Church, they would say things like, God is impassable, or He is without passions. And what, what they mean by that is, is not that God is you know, indifferent and stoic and cold. No, that's not what they mean. Rather, what they're trying to avoid is what we just described, that, that this, this God is is someone who is uh, like those those pagan deities, someone who is just controlled by his emotions. Uh, the book is called None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. Matthew Barrett, the author, is our guest. Matthew, we've arrived at this topic. Is God in time, timeless eternity? Yes, well, this is uh, one of the most important questions to ask. It, it may seem to Christians like, well, this is somewhat abstract and, and that sort of thing. Actually, it's very relevant to, to the Christian life. Uh, I argue that uh, it, Scripture describes God as the eternal God, the one who is timelessly eternal. You and I, we have certain limitations. We experience one moment after another. Uh, the we have a succession of moments, and so we're very limited in that way. Uh, right now we're on, you know, talking to each other. The next minute we're eating, and we really can't get ahead of time. Uh, but that's not the case for God. He's not bound by time. In fact, he's the one that created the whole universe out of nothing. Uh, so he transcends time altogether. Why is that important? Well, unless he's the timelessly eternal God, he cannot give us finite creatures the eternal life we need so desperately. I kind of chuckle at the Stephen Wright line years ago. If it wasn't for time, he said, everything would happen at once. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's, a, that's exactly right. Try and get your mind around that one for a minute, and uh, we move on. Is God bound by space? Well, this is uh, not all that different from the last question. Uh, is God bound by time? Uh, if he's not bound by time, he's not bound by space either. Uh, I don't know about you, but last time I checked, uh, I can only be in in one space at a time. And uh, I'm very, very limited in that way. I, I make up a certain space and and uh, can't transcend uh, one space simultaneously. The, the amazing thing about God is, well, he's not a God bound by space, which means he's He's immense. It also means that he can be present um, everywhere all at once. It is, that's really difficult for our minds to understand, but uh, Scripture describes him as the God um, who, who knows all things and is present everywhere, both to judge and to save. If there's seven billion people on earth, how does he keep track of all of us? Yeah, well, it's something only he can do, right? Uh, this is something that would defy our ability, clearly. Uh, but uh, I, I can't help but think of what Jesus says, right, uh, where he is, uh, on the one hand, telling his disciples, don't be anxious, uh, my Father knows every hair on your head. Mm. And then as he's you know, been crucified and resurrected and about to ascend to heaven, he tells his disciples, uh, not to fear, because he will be with them to the to the very ends of the earth. Uh, so, what what appears to be um, something impossible for us is entirely possible for God. And actually, in the end, um, it it not only means he's present in just a general sense everywhere, but he also is present with his children in a special way, in a in a covenantal way, full of love and mercy and compassion. Uh, have you ever thought, Matt, about, um, oh, I don't know, if, uh, if, if, if two and a half billion, million people are all praying to him at the same time, 
Uh, how, how does he how does he handle all that? Well, this is one of the uh, wonders uh, of our of our God. Uh, you may remember we said at, at the beginning he's infinite in his essence. He's not just merely greater in size, uh, but he's his his very essence is immeasurable. Uh, he's a different type of being than us entirely. Mm-hmm. That has a lot of that may seem like oh that's very you know theological or even philosophical, but like you're mentioning that has a lot of important implications. Uh, one of them is that uh, when it comes to prayer, um, he's not only the God who knows all our prayers. Um, but he is the God who then chooses to to act according to his eternal will, uh, and oftentimes that's that's through means like our own prayers. Matthew, uh, so Matthew, our prayers are significant. We got to take a break. We'll come back. Hold your thought, please. Uh, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's ninety four point nine FM and AM nine fifty. The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. Matthew Barrett is the author of None Greater. Matthew, before the break, uh, you were filling us in on uh, this this issue of prayer. Can you finish, please? Yes. You know, when we go to the Gospels, for example, Jesus uh, teaches his disciples uh, how to pray. You know, our Father who who art in heaven, and and this may be a prayer that that most Christians are are somewhat familiar with. Um, but of course, Jesus is assuming that uh, in in instructing us to, to pray to the Father this way, he's assuming that uh, in, in his infinite knowledge, his infinite uh, immensity and, and omnipresence, uh, in his infinite omnipotence and power, uh, this is a God who not only hears our prayers, but then uh, works out his sovereign purposes and will, uh, and oftentimes does so th- through means like our own prayer life, uh, which means that... Uh, when we pray, uh, this is not just some something that is lost in space and time, but God hears our prayers, and whether we always realize it or not, um, He is acting through our prayers as the very means to bring about His sovereign will. Matthew, the next topic I want you to talk about is God all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-wise. Well, you know, this is a very important set of attributes, uh, and, and I I wanted to de- devote a chapter to each of them, but I thought, you know what, they really go together in so many ways, because whenever we talk about God's knowledge, we can't help but talk about His power, and whenever we talk about His power, we have to talk about His wisdom. Uh, these complement each other. You know, if God was all-powerful but not all-wise, well, who, he perhaps He would be an evil dictator of some sort and, and immoral, uh, much like the, the pagan deities of, of the ancient world, but uh, he, he's he's all wise. Or if he was all wise but not all powerful, well, uh, that would be a, a wise sage, perhaps, but one that didn't have the ability to act on that wisdom. Uh, or if he was all knowing but not all powerful, well, he would have a lot of knowledge of what has happened or will happen, but not the the omnipotence to then carry out his will. So all that to say, all three of these, power, knowledge, and wisdom, they must be kept together. This goes back to that attribute of simplicity. Uh, Whenever we're talking about one attribute, uh, we can't help but then go to the next attribute because they all are related to one another. Matthew, I am familiar with the word omnipresence and, and omnipotence and omniscience, but that other word I don't think I've ever seen before. Omnis, how do you pronounce it? Omnispiens or what? what no. Yes, it's it's a it's a very foreign one I think to, to most of us. Omnisapiens. Uh, it's an old an old fashioned word. We don't use it much today, but uh, it's one that some of the, the Christians down through the ages love to use to say God is all wise. Um, so. You'll think of it this way, and some of these are communicable attributes, which means they're reflected in us in some way. We have wisdom, um, and hopefully. <laughs> we have wisdom that, that is God-given. Uh, but we always have to remember that the way uh, God has wisdom, well, it's, in the, it's an entirely uh, another level. Uh, we, we may have wisdom, but He is wisdom, and He's, he's wisdom in an infinite degree, 
Omnisapience is a term that tries to capture that, to say uh, this isn't a God who merely possesses wisdom or acts in wise ways. He is wisdom in his very being. Omnisapience, I got it. That means <laughs> all-wise, right? That's right, all-wise. Can God be both holy and loving, uh, righteousness, goodness, and love? You know, in our uh, God talk, uh, sometimes very well-meaning Christians, but uh, oftentimes as we you know, go about talking about the gospel or the Christian life, we sometimes can set attributes over against one another. Unfortunately, this is one of those cases. I, I sometimes hear Christians set God's love over against His holiness. Uh, and we tend to do this when we talk about the cross. We'll say, well, the cross, what's that about? It's all about God's, God's love, but uh, it doesn't have anything to do with His righteousness or His holiness or His judgment or His wrath. But when we go to a passage like Romans chapter 3, uh, Paul says something very different, doesn't he? He talks about, well, there's a major problem as sinners— uh, God can't just, uh, you know, sweep our sin under the rug or turn a blind eye. He wouldn't be just. Uh, he wouldn't be a holy God if he did that. Uh, and yet at the same time, how do we explain the fact that God has loved us so much he sent his son to die for us? Well, Paul says it's at the cross. That's the answer, where God's mercy and his love kiss his righteousness and his justice so that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. This is only possible because Christ bears the penalty for our sin, and he does that uh, so that we are forgiven, but uh, he does it out of love for us. So uh, these don't need to be set against one another. In fact, we could say God is holy love. Should God be jealous for his own glory? We are not used to referring to God as jealous, are we? I mean, so often when we use the, the term jealous in our own culture, it's almost always a negative uh, attribute, uh, one that it, it communicates immorality, or, you know, we think of, the, you know, the abusive boyfriend who, you know, beats up uh, his girlfriend, something like that, out of jealousy, that sort of thing. And surely that's not what we mean when we talk about God, uh, but... Uh, it may surprise Christians that Scripture everywhere uh, does talk about God as the one who's jealous, not just the one who acts in a jealous way, but whose name is called jealous. Uh, so what does this mean in Scripture? Well, uh, unlike our common uh, assumptions, in Scripture it refers to God's—it um, refers to an intolerant love of God, the fact that he is jealous first and foremost for his own glory, because he's the perfect being. He's the only one in the universe who deserves glory, uh, unlike us. Um, and so as he, he then uh, relates to us, um, we are to be those made in his image who then live for his glory. All that to say, jealousy simply means for us as Christians that uh, God cares deeply about our exclusive devotion to himself. And that should have implications then for our holiness, for how we treat others, and most importantly, for our devotion to God himself. Matthew, I want you to explain to us, where is the Holy Spirit in our everyday lives? Is he inside of each believer? Where does the Holy Spirit reside? And, and are, That's an excellent are, are, question. Are, are we to be talking to him? We don't. Do we pray to the Holy Spirit? Do we? Ask? Yeah, yeah. That's an excellent, excellent question. Uh, you know, when whenever we talk about the attributes of God, we have to remember this is the triune God uh, that we are referring to: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And certainly, with these attributes, these are true of each person of the Trinity: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which means that the Holy Spirit too. Uh, is characterized by by these many attributes, uh, and, and for that reason, uh, we call him Holy Spirit. So that certainly captures both his transcendence, his infinite, um, his infinite nature, but then also his his ethical purity and holiness. 
where, where is he? Well, uh, when we, Scripture has a lot to say about this. Uh, it even calls us temples, uh, picking up on the Old Testament language, temples of the Holy Spirit, which is just amazing, because in the Old Testament, you could not just walk right into the temple. You could be struck down. Uh, you are a sinner. You can't enter into the presence of the Holy God. And yet, because of Christ being our mediator, now Christ says the Holy Spirit, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to indwell you, and permanently so. Um, what does this mean? Well, there's, there's a lot of mystery here. I think it means, first and foremost, that um, we are those who are set apart for God. Uh, that, that's part of what it meant in the Old Testament. Uh, God, that's part of what God's presence presence communicated in the Old Testament. So we're set apart for God, but it also means that the Holy Spirit is with us uh, in a very personal way to to help us strive after Christ, uh, to be conformed. He's at work in us to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. Um, He does this often in quiet ways. Uh, My guest has been Matthew Barrett. What a great book, none greater. We've got a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. In the first segment, Mary Lederleitner was with us, talking about women in God's mission. And then Matthew Barrett uh, jumped in. He's in Kansas City. Had a great chat with Matthew about none greater. Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And please check out my uh, newest book. It's just out. It's called Character Carved in Stone, about the 12 benches at Trophy Point on the campus at West Point with 12 important words carved into the stone. You'll have a good time reading this. Mike Krzyzewski, Coach K, wrote the foreword. We'll be back next weekend for more, folks, right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. I'm your host, Pat Williams, and uh, wish you a wonderful week ahead. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.